Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello. I'm very excited about this. We've got one of my personal musical heroes on the show today. I was genuinely nervous for this interview. You might actually hear it in my voice. They say, I don't know who they is, but they say you should never meet your heroes. But Mike D did not let me down, not at all, quite the opposite. He was so smart and thoughtful and friendly. I've been listening to Mike D's band, The Beastie Boys, since I was in junior high. As you'll hear me say in the interview, The Beastie Boys were my first concert. Anybody who's ever heard their early tracks will know that uh, some of the lyrics were a wee bit problematic, but the Beasties went on to become one of the most innovative and progressive and amazing musical acts of the 1990s and beyond. In this interview, we talk about how Mike D reconciles the misogyny of the Beasties' early work, the evolution of the band, and how they freed themselves from feeling imprisoned by their own personas, the role of failure in success, the value of taking risks when you're being creative, watching his late bandmate Adam Yauch find Buddhism and how that impacted the band's music, the addictive nature of adrenaline when you're performing, the role meditation and yoga played for Mike as he tried to calibrate the highs and lows out on tour and how these practices are now playing a big role for him as he parents two young men, how he works through self-judgment while meditating, how he and his other surviving bandmate Adam Horowitz managed their grief in the wake of the untimely death of Adam Yauch, and how a beastie boy came to embrace, of all things, loving kindness. Heads up, uh, the content can be a little mature here in this particular episode, unsurprising given the beasties oeuvre, so uh, just take care if you're listening with kids. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I gotta tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Mike D, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Do you prefer Mike Diamond, Michael Diamond, Mike D? What do you go by these days? Well, it's funny. What do I go by these days? I, you know, I, I take what I can get, honestly, <laughs> as long as it's not too derogatory. And none of those are. Right. But well, this, this whole conversation say. could devolve. I mean, we could get derogatory, but we're being polite <laughs> yeah. for now. Okay. Fair enough. 
in our correspondence prior to doing yeah. this, you mentioned coming to see Beastie Boys shows at the Worcester Centrum. There's something, and I don't really know why, but our shows at the Worcester Centrum, pronounced with a local's accent, would be Worcester Centrum. Not bad. Right? Worcester, Not bad. I'm going to a wicked pizza at the <laughs> Worcester Centrum. <laughs> that crowd was just the most hardcore, toughest crowd. We basically had to reinvent security techniques just to keep the crowd at a place where they could go nuts, enjoy it, enjoy themselves, but not be actually destructive to themselves and to each other. Yes. I was with a group of very scared, timid Jewish people up in the bleachers, and mm-hmm. it looked like there was a bunch of crazy drunk people in the front rows. Mm-hmm. Were they getting on the stage and accosting you? No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. We were loved, right? Because we played there as like the headliner many times. And thank God you and your your fellow <laughs> Worcester natives supported us. <laughs> well, just to be clear, I'm from Newton, which is a cushy suburb closer to Boston. Okay. And I imagine the crowd, I have visceral memories. It was, a, I think the first concert I ever went to was the Beastie Boys. There was a huge penis that came out of a box on the stage. And Oh, wow. You're, you're early, that, early. Right, it was okay. probably your first, early in your first tour. You were guys were spraying the crowd with beer, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, well, anyway, so as time evolved, and we evolved, (laughs) uh, the penis was left out of it. Um, And, you know, we came to see the ramifications of our actions a bit differently as one, pretty much everybody, I think, well, hopefully everybody does with maturity. How did that journey go, though? How did that transformation go from giant dick on the stage to songs like Bodhisattva Mm. Vow and Shambhala uh, that was on Ill Communication? Yeah. That's a huge shift. What happened? What provoked it? How did it go? I think there's a number of things. We went from being in this period of our lives where it was almost kind of nirvanic of like growing up in New York City and going out to all these clubs and being totally immersed in music and loving all the music. And because we were in New York City, we had access to all of this different kind of music that was all happening at a time that the only way you could get to it then was, I think, really by being in New York City, or at least get to all of that different kind of music literally in the same night. The only city in the world probably that had that at that time, and I'm talking about, you know, mid-80s before, obviously, before this thing called the internet or digital streaming music. And so we were just like so happy to be in this world. And then we have this band. We start this band called Beastie Boys. I'm in high school. We put out our first hardcore punk rock seven inch called Polywogs Do when I was like 16 and I was still in 11th grade, I'm thinking. And then we go out and we make this record called Cookie Puss. And that actually starts getting played in these nightclubs that we're going to as still kids in New York City. And then we're kind of, in that sense, it was almost nirvanic for us because we're like in the culture that we really relate to and and sort of dreamed about being part of. And now we're actually part of it. And now not only are we part of it, like we're going to get to go to all these clubs for free. And we're kind of like celebrities in this very microcosmic sense, right? And so it doesn't have any of the downsides that come with being celebrity, only the upsides. Like you get to go into a club for free, you get given a drink, people are nice to you as opposed to rude to you. It is all, you know, upside. And then... We're making License Sale, and License Sale comes out, and that's even better because then we're just obsessed with rap music, and we're in this world of, like, we're on tour with Run DMC. We're on tour with LL Cool J. They all helped us immensely and taught us a lot, and they've all totally taken us into this world that is so exciting and meant everything to us, and that was great. But then License Sale comes out, and it becomes this, like, huge thing where it has this moment where, you know, you in junior high school or wherever you were in your arc and many others are also like, oh, my God, I love this group. But that did change our lives, and it changed our lives in a bunch of ways. But one of the ways is that all of a sudden there's money generated to what you're doing. And then as soon as you have money and you're, you know, we're, we're young, we're at this point, gosh, I'm maybe, like, 20 years old, then you have a lot of people who are trying to manipulate the direction in which you go. And somehow we got completely screwed over by the label we were assigned to called Def Jam, which is Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. And Rick I'm still friends with. And Rick, to his 
defense, I guess. You know, Rick also bowed. He was like, I'm I'm kind of out this world. I started it, but I don't really want to be part of it anymore. And he he was gone. And we we basically had this fight with Russell Simmons, who then was sort of solely Def Jammer. He just like wanted us to just keep being the wild, crazy sort of, you know, we really became self-parroting, right? Mm. We it was like kind of like we had this idea that like, oh, it would be funny to throw beer on stage. We read Led Zeppelin Hammer of the Gods. And we kind of we really liked this idea of creating our own myth. And it felt very free in a way to create mm-hmm. our own myth. We just and it, it seemed really funny to us because it was so different than the world we actually came from mm. of like this very downtown New York City artistic liberal yeah, just very, very artistic world that seemed really hilarious to us until it wasn't. <laughs> so so I think the process it came part of out of being successful and being manipulated and then becoming successful and then having this weird feeling of like, wait, all of a sudden in 12 months we went from being completely passionate and completely in love with what we're doing to feeling like that's not us on stage at all hmm. and being told literally that that's your job and you have to go do it. And we realized very quickly, like, that's not what we want to do. And actually, thankfully, I think that's the luxury of being privileged. And when I say privileged, it's not, I don't even just mean that in some kind of economic sense of like, we all came from these homes in New York City where, you know, even as dysfunctional as our households may have been, we were taught that we had a voice hmm. and that our opinions mattered and so I think Russell Simmons actually totally misread us, honestly. You know, I'd be curious to get his <laughs> his take on it, wherever he is in the world. Because I think he just, he blew it in terms of he just figured like, okay, if I just sort of basically say like, you have to keep doing the same thing you did or I'm not going to pay you, which is what that's what he did. Our reaction to that was like, well, go fuck yourself. We we realized right away, we don't want to just be a circus act as a hmm. job. And we realized we wanted to get back to making what we loved making, which was what we were doing with Rick originally when we were, you know, we were making License to Ill. Even though we were laughing, a lot of it were like jokes that we didn't realize that then when they get to be massly communicated, also become massly misunderstood. So anyway, so I think that was all part of it. And then the other huge part was that we all sort of had this wake up of, wow, we can joke around about being misogynistic on a record, but if that actually then empowers people to act that way, holy fuck. You know, it really felt weird. Mm. Didn't feel good. (laughs) And it made us really feel like the band wasn't ours. It's almost like we had to take the band back. And then in doing so, we're very, very fortunate because then I think it made us really close friends, the three of us. The paradigm shifted where it was like our relationship to each other became the primary, most important thing. So you you invent these personas of like kind of frat boys on crank, even though you're coming out of, you know, a a really liberal, open-minded, artistic community. And it's Mm -hmm. funny because you think you're making this record, nobody's going to hear it. Then the whole world hears it and they take it way too seriously, and you start to feel imprisoned by your own personas, and you kind of walk away from it all, go to L.A. and and reinvent. Yeah, 100%. So we have this falling out with Death and we go to L.A., and it's interesting looking back at it, right? Because we couldn't have become what we became if we didn't have that falling out. Because then we go to Los Angeles, and it really is up to the three of us, because the people we thought were our friends didn't pay us being Def Jam. Like I said, Rick is kind of split and he's doing his own thing. And he coincidentally moved to LA as well. Then yeah, we're left to like think, okay, well, what do we want to do? And we realized we do want to be with each other. You know, that was always a very unique thing for, I think, us as a band is, yeah, sure, we would we get into arguments and be completely passionate about one idea that maybe one or two to others of us in the group didn't get, sure, that's going to happen with any artistic collaboration. But we really did value and really liked being with each other and spending time with each other. And that became like an important thing. And so, yeah, there we are in LA. We meet these guys, the Dust Brothers, love the music that we hear that 
they started working on. They played for us and we were like, could we work with you on some of these tracks to start making our new record? And two of the Dust Brothers, John King and Mike Simpson, they were computer engineering students at Claremont College, which is, I think, outside of LA, like Pomona or something. Yes. So they had like the earliest version of music recording software we'd ever seen where they, by using two mono samplers, we were able to go into stereo. This is technical and boring, but it was... It was technology that hadn't existed for us. Like, unlicensed to ill, technologically, the things that you hear that are samples are actually physical tape loops that we had going around the control room Mm. of the studio. But the only samplers that existed were these machines that cost, you know, more than like a Bentley or something. So, license away of tape loops, and then all of a sudden now, because of these computer science slash musical geeks, the Dust Brothers, we were all of a sudden able to sample all these different records that we love. And so we go completely ballistic on making Paul's Boutique of just delving into, without even really knowing, it's just sort of technology enabling us to go in a certain direction. And then really having that freedom, again, because we had this falling out with Def Jam, so now we're completely on our own. We don't have anybody telling us what to do. And we've had this success, so... There's major record labels that want to work with us, but it's not like when you have a young band and you can say, oh, you know, great, we're going to put your record out, but we really think for you to fit in, you've got to be like this and you've got to be like that. And, you know, no, this we don't hear anything for the radio, so we really we want you to go back in and work with this producer. We are free of any of that because we'd had this huge right. success with License to Ill. So then we, yeah, we moved to California, we make Paul's Boutique, We really put a lot into it. We're really happy with it when we finally finish it, and it's a total commercial failure. (laughs) Totally flops. Probably, you know, maybe to some degree, probably because we didn't have anybody who was able to say, hey, you guys, um, you know, your last record had like these songs on it called like Fight Fear at the Party, and there's nothing on this album that's like that at all. (laughs) You know, you can do that, but there's going to be ramifications. And there were, you know, Mm -hmm. and like people just that, audience that bought License to Ill and Droves at that time couldn't connect with Paul's Boutique. You know, and that's where I actually lose my ability to explain because I'm very grateful that over time, it's this record that people love and point to and shifted culture somewhat because of how it was made and the technology involved in how we we used and abused it. But it's just, honestly, it's miraculous that the first time around that we basically were these kids from New York City and have this success with License to Ill, and then it's all the more miraculous that we, then in this sort of like Phoenix rising from the ashes moment, and we go and we make Paul's Boutique. It works for us artistically, but it's a total failure, but then is like the best thing that could have happened to us in terms of the longevity and the actual sort of quality of life of the band ever, really. That makes sense. Right. Well, when we talk... So, yeah, here I am selling failure. (laughs) I'm trying trying to do, Dan, sell failure. Well, failure is worth selling. No, it is. I actually, I've had a lot of epiphany moments as a parent, but one of the biggest I had was like, I think like, all parents, I ended up in this weird, ego-fragile space of like, you know, my kids were going to like competitive schools here in New York City and doing the whole private school thing. And you're, you know, you're going to like parent teacher night and you're really worried about like what the teacher's going to say. I realized like, what the fuck? Like F is the worst grade you can get. And I'm only where I am in life because of multiple Fs. Failure is just the greatest thing to ever (laughs) happened to me, basically, right? So how, why am I valuing putting my kids through a culture that's saying that failure is a bad thing? So what did you do about that? Eventually, then my kids ended up going to school in Bali. (laughs) Indonesia, Bali. (laughs) In Indonesia, Bali, at a place called Green School, where hopefully they were a little free to make their own mistakes. And I think it worked out. My father used to say that the hardest thing about being a parent is letting your kids make their own mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's still hard. My kids are 18 and 20. It's still hard. Like, I have to like, zip my mouth shut a lot of times and 
just be like, all right, no, they're going to have to experience this to learn it. There's no point in me saying this is what is going to happen. Yes. What about you in your own life now? Are you still getting Fs? I hope so. Yeah, I, I am. I yes, yes, I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's an odd and thing to say you, with pride. Yeah, no, I, I don't know how to learn without having that kind of investment and failure. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm putting myself out there enough to fail. I hope that I continue to do that and that I am continuing to do that now. I think that's key. Yeah. I mean, another word for that would just be courage. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think you're right, but I would not be comfortable. I'll have to talk to my therapist about this after. Because <laughs> no, it's true. Like, I wouldn't be comfortable saying, like, oh, I, I'm courageous. I wouldn't be comfortable embracing that. But you're probably correct. It's interesting. Rick Rubin wrote this um, book on the creative process. I'm making a note of that because I'll put him on the show if he... Yeah, you should definitely try to reach out to him and see if you could, because it would be a great episode for your show. Anyway, he just talks about the creative process and that, yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing, right? That's a huge thing in whatever your creative pursuit is. We're totally not aware of it in the time. Like, I have no problem saying, looking back at it, Paul's Boutique was a very courageous effort because we didn't listen. We didn't compromise. We didn't try to make license to ill part two. Which would have been commercially almost guaranteed to succeed. Maybe. I mean, who knows? We'll never know, actually. Right. right? There are no sliding doors here. Right. It could have been it. Could have been like, mm, ah, lukewarm license to ill. And okay, fine. Now everybody's grown up, but Fair we enough. don't need to hear from these guys ever again. Well, you know, we just don't know. On this issue of taking risks, especially as it pertains to creativity, I believe it was Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, who said, creation is embarrassing. And I love that. Hmm. Because as I, you know, spend years writing books, like the process, as I show early drafts to people, it's totally embarrassing because they suck. Yeah. Well, and by the way, same with songs. And say we learned this, um, Horvitz, I learned this the hard way in terms of when we did our book, Beastie Boys book, same thing, right? The early drafts of it. It sucks. And it's even worse than making a record because records, it was very interesting to find this out. And I know this makes me sound like a supreme dumbass, which maybe I am. Uh, (laughs) But records, at least you're working on something and it might still suck, but you get to play it back loud and you get some kind of gratification, right? There's some way you can play it back for yourself for the people you're working with or people that are really close to you. And like, hmm, oh, this part is great. Or, you know, 98% of it might still suck, but there's still something where you're like, oh, this is cool. In the written word, you don't get any of that. No. You, you spend all morning writing and you go back and you look at it the next morning and you're like, I don't know. Is this just terrible? Like, is this even me? Does this even sound like me? There's no gratification. <laughs> there's only work, refinement, and suffering. Yes. All right, use the word suffering, which is, of course, a big Buddhist buzzword. I want to go back to this arc from License to Ill and Fight for Your Right to Party to having songs on a record that are overtly Buddhist. Mm. And I think a big part of that was MCA, Adam Yauch, your bandmate, becoming a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And as you watch that happen, how did that go down with you? Yeah, that's a good question. So first, Paul's Boutique, we have the commercial failure going back to the failure word, that it actually is great, though, because it gives us this even bigger degree of artistic freedom. Because at that point, we got signed to this big record deal at Capitol Records. Everybody who was involved in signing us to that record deal gets fired because it's like, guys, you made the worst commercial decision in history. You've signed this band that's clearly going nowhere, and now they've made a failure we got to change directions here. So we're literally, nobody wants anything to do with us, but we're still signed to Capitol Records and we still have a budget so we can go off and make music on our own. So we we literally kind of regroup at Adam Horvitz's apartment. We start picking up our own instruments because we're like, "Hmm, you know, all these records we've been listening to that we've been sampling, what if we just start playing some stuff like sort of inspired by that, like everything we've done in our lives very naively because we don't really think about the fact that, okay, yeah, we've grown up our lives playing instruments, but most of the artists we love, you know, are like prodigal examples and well-studied musicians that have put huge, vast amounts of time and effort into mastering their craft. And here we are just like, well, we'll do it, whatever. Anyway, so we start 
working on Check Your Head. We build our own studio. Adam comes in one day and I forget what it was. He's like, no, I'm going on this trip. I'm going to go to Kathmandu and I'm going to go trekking through Nepal and then eventually through India. And I try to think what it felt like when he said that. So first it's kind of like, hold on, we're making a record here. And you're talking about going to like high elevations in Nepal trekking. And then we're also, it's just a kind of unfathomable, right? And, and it's also very courageous, right? To like kind of leave this creative process that you're in with your friends and somehow just follow this calling and go off on your adventure. So he goes and he comes back, but looking back at it, I, I don't know what to attribute it to. Like what was the calling that got him there and then led to him having these experiences. But he was very struck by, in his trekking experience, he met, Tibetans, you know, diasporatic Tibetans that exposed him to the idea of you know, Buddhist concepts and also not only Buddhist concepts, but the sort of situation that they were living in exiled from Tibet and having, you know, an exiled spiritual leader with his holiness, the Dalai Lama. You know, he didn't make it to Dhamsala on that trip, but got exposed to the idea of the teachings of the Dalai Lama and what Dhamsala itself represented you know, you're kind of like, on the one hand, the fuck, you disappeared, and now you're back. But then at the same time, it was incredible because you see this friend of yours that you truly love have literally their mind broken wide open and sharing it all with you. And it was an incredible thing. And what a gift for all of us. He sort of continued his path in a just kind of gradual and maturing way than when he would have time either doing a multi-day bodhisattva course with His Holiness. This is still obviously decades pre-pandemic when His Holiness would still come to North America with some frequency, or he would go to Dharmsala when he would have time and do a bit of studying. And, and it was interesting with Adam, but I think it's also a lot of people will go and embrace a lot of the teachings, the Buddhist philosophy and from His Holiness, but Adam really took on the, the political plight, but in in a very, I don't know, it's a very sort of Buddhist principled way of like, if we can kind of speak up for what's happening with these people having to live diasporatically just because of their ideals and their beliefs, and we can affect change nonviolently, that this could be like a very transformational moment for all. Hence the concert for Free Tibet. You put on a bunch of Tibetan freedom concerts. We did. It became kind of like an annual thing. And But, you know, again, to give Adam credit, I mean, talk about courage. The one we did when we played the first year was in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And it was like, I feel like it was like the first huge kind of charity concert that was done from when Live Aid happened or yeah. something. I mean, it was yeah. like tens and tens of thousands of people in Golden Gate Park with a lot of artists, you know, lending their talents and names to it. And it's really, yeah, really beautiful. Coming up, we dive deeper into Tibetan Buddhism and its influence on the Beastie Boys. We talk about Mike D's own meditation practice and how his practice helped him offset the addictive nature of adrenaline when he was out on tour. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff 
at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You say he took on the political part of it, but it's interesting in preparation for this interview, my staff put together a little dossier on you. And I was reading some quotes from Yauk. I mean, he's a young guy, but it's clear if you read his quotes talking about Buddhism, he understood something key. Here it is. The people that I've met, this is Yauk talking, Adam Yauk. The people that I've met are really centered in the heart. They're coming from a real, clear, compassionate place. And most of the teachings that I've read about almost seem set up to distract the other side of your brain in order to give your heart center a chance to open up. In terms of what I understand, Buddhism is like a manual to achieve enlightenment. There are these five things and these six things within the first thing and all these little subdivisions. Despite all of that right brain information, it's really heart-centered. At least that's the feeling I get from the Tibetans. Also, the teachings of Tibetan Buddhism have been passed down for a long time now. They seem to have the system pretty well figured out. Anyway, I read that. I was like, huh, that's like a a really smart 25-year-old concise explanation of Buddhism in a nutshell. We just turn down the volume on the monkey mind, whatever the ego is constantly vomiting up. And when you can clear away that noise, well, then the good stuff can come out. Your, your capacity for kindness, clarity, calm, compassion, connection. And then, of course, he goes on to describe Buddhism and all of its great details as, yeah, they come up with all these lists and it may seem technical, but at the nub, it's really designed to just, like, make you happier and a better person. Mm-hmm. And he got it, you can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it resonated, obviously, really deeply. And is very palpable for him in this tangible way. And, and he took a lot of it on. You know, we talked about it in the book and in the film Beastie Boys story. Highly recommend that. It's incredibly oh, good. Well, thank you. Thank you. But, yeah, see, I'm not good at doing plugs. But I did a plug there pretty professionally. Yes. I think a lot of what was joyful for both Adam Horowitz and myself in the writing of the book and the writing and creation of Beastie Boys story was that we got to talk about, Yauk was so anomalous in that he was this friend of ours that could go deep into Tibetan philosophy and Buddhist philosophy with a real understanding, but at the same time would at the drop of a dime, literally the drop of a dime, would be like, oh, this party is happening. Let's go buy costumes and dress up ridiculously. Let's <laughs> go there. You know, he didn't lead the life of an ascetic or uh, a monk in any classic sense at all. He really did live this very rich life where he was willing to just dive into things with complete passion and commitment, whether it was putting on a costume or attending Buddhist lectures. <laughs> or not even attending the lectures, really like you pointed out. He really was able to distill it down yes. in a like kind of, you know, like you do over podcasts, right? Distilling Buddhist information, putting it out there in a relatable way. Thank you. But he, you know, I'm an old man and he was doing this at a much younger age and yeah, the conditions sure. in his life were at least, you know, through at least one lens, not as conducive to Buddhism. In other words, he had all the worldly temptations and yep. 
everything, you know, wasn't at an age where he was doing that much suffering yet, at least on the surface. And yet he was clearly drawn to this thing in a very powerful way, mm. and it changed his life. It does kind of bring us back to the beginning of this conversation with the dick coming out of the box and all the stuff that you guys yeah, said on record as you, a joke. You had to go back there. I know you? I did. Yeah. But, but, but I did. Talk about be, suffering. <laughs> you're going to be happy with it. Make your guest really uncomfortable here. <laughs> Yauk then goes on to write the lyric in Short Shot, mm-hmm. which is on Ill yeah. Communication, I believe. Yeah, correct. Yeah. It's a basically a complete refutation of your earlier jokier thesis that people took the wrong way. Yeah, I think it felt great to Adam and great to us. Like, how lucky are we that we get to exist? We get to continue on as a band to not only go and have all this fun together originally and come up with (laughs) the most absurd thing possible, having a dick in the box (laughs) on a stage, and then get to go on and make records and sort of comment on it. And really from a place from speaking from the heart where, you know, just, you know, how great and how amazing is that that we get to sort of continue to go on and yes. do that? I mean, to become a force for good in the world, not only through the sheer beauty of the music, and I mean that sincerely, but also the promotion and protection of an entire culture that got kicked out of their home country, the Tibetans, of course, mm-hmm. and and this music that lives on. You know, my son is eight. We listened to the Beastie Boys well mm-hmm. before I was able to book you on this show. By the way, I'm obsessed with, you'll know this, maybe you'll resonate with this as a father of two boys, but I'm obsessed with impressing my son in any possible way. And the only time I've come close to succeeding was showing him that I was emailing with you the other day. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, we all do embarrassing shit when we're younger, and you mm-hmm. guys did. Yeah. And as you said, you were blessed to have a long enough career to really turn it around. Yeah, everybody does embarrassing shit, especially at the age that we did it. Like yeah. when you're 20 years old, just most people are at that point getting their undergraduate degrees in college. And well, now everything is captured, but then nothing would be captured. It just happened that ours was literally broadcast mm-hmm. everywhere. Yes. yes, this goof that you guys were yeah. coming up with, not thinking anybody <laughs> would hear it. Yeah. So having had this incredible experience of having achieved so much success and then you know having this beloved bandmate, find Buddhism, and then very unfortunately pass away way too soon. Where are you now? Do you practice Buddhism? What's your spiritual or meditative game? My game, my practices, I'm a, um, essentially just because I've found a compartmentalized sense that works best for me is I'm a very dedicated TMer. Actually, transcendental meditation, because that for me, it's it's a very transportable practice. Mm. And as much as I like being surprised and like being sort of tested and testing myself with uncertainty. I think to be able to do that, I need routine mm. in my life. And I come also from a, a, something you mentioned when you were, we were emailing prior to this show. I have this yogic asana background because here we are, we're this band, we're on stage, like the events are like high energies is a term that's not accurate at all. It's so beyond, like, it's like full, unfiltered, hormonal. It's just, it's so full on. And, you know, it's really interesting looking back at it because I don't think any of us, none of us knew that we actually had this thing called a nervous system, which again, I know makes me sound like a dumbass. <laughs> that, uh, uh, we did, but I didn't, I truly didn't. I don't, I think I was well into my 40s when I <laughs> learned that I had this thing called a ner- nervous system. But I think that's where another part of, in a pragmatic sense, Buddhism really resonated with him because all of a sudden we're going on stage night after night after night in front of 20,000 people and having to both put out all this energy and take on all this energy that's happening. And that's really is what's happening in this concert arena. It's a big level mass energy exchange. And I think for Yauk, that just felt good. And it was like the only thing that actually would calm his nervous system. And for me, then I remember influenced by him going to India. Then I went to India a little bit later and I go to Mysore and I studied Ashtanga yoga there. And it was interesting. I think that was part of my survival mechanism mm-hmm. on tour with, again, not knowing that I had a nervous system. It's probably the first time that I actually experienced something that was calming to my nervous system and took me to a place that was outside of ego 
We try for that as practitioners. Yeah. All of us as meditators, practitioners, whatever, there's so many times we're like, oh, God, we're very judgmental, and that was a shitty meditation. Oh, that was a great meditation. All, all of these things that are completely meaningless and are just ego chatter. But as long as we keep showing up and practicing, it's fine. Exactly, because what you can get when you show up and practice is a glimpse. I was fortunate enough to have that experience, of course, through my time of practicing asana, meditation, I'd have these glimpses that would, I, I would always say, like, they're the glimpses that keep you in the game. Yes. That, like, just, you're struggling with the practice a little bit, and then you get this, like, glimpse, and you're like, oh, all right, that's why. I've done a non-trivial amount of meditation, and I've done some yoga, but I've never had a moment in yoga, the physical postures, where I've had a glimpse of anything other than, wow, my hip flexors are tight. <laughs> so <laughs> there what, are those for, two. <laughs> what for you, like what happens, this is my ignorance. I can see how it would work, but I don't understand the mechanism of how doing these postures would create a glimpse of something beyond the ego. That's where Yaks quote about Buddhism resonates with me because I think, again, you've got Ayurvedic knowledge that is going back. I mean, it predates, you're talking ancient civilization here. And you've got this tradition of practices and of asanas that these practices have survived thousands of years. There's probably a reason that they're passed down from generation to generation. In the yogic practices, yeah, there is something in this. It's this ancient lineage, and then you're taught a series of practices or asanas, and then all of a sudden you're feeling something that is beyond you, right? That is, you're having a little glimpse of transcendence or of something bigger than you or that you're part of something much bigger. And it's, I think, for Adam and I and everybody who's been a musician and a lot of other things too, but music very specifically, when you're sort of, I feel like, I don't want to say happiest, but there's this feeling you get in collaboration with music where it really is a transcendent form. You can be playing drums, you can be playing bass, you can be playing guitar, you can be a pianist, you can be a flautist, you could be first chair cellist, I don't care. But there are these moments where you are so absorbed in the work you're making with others that your communication with others is totally beyond the right brain, right? You're like off into not only other hemispheres of the brain, you're literally off into other hemispheres, period. And I think yoga was the first place ever where I had a little glimpse like that, like that I'd had in music. And I think that's what I started learning as I got older. It was like, oh, now I guess it, it makes a lot of sense to me why like so many musician friends of mine end up being complete wrecks when they get back from tour because they're out on tour and there's vast amounts of like adrenaline pumping through their system every night. Again, it comes back to the nervous system. Like, there's nothing putting them back in balance and nobody's like handing them a manual oh, hey, you're 25 and, you know, this is kind of crazy, but you're, you're doing this like huge exercise for your ego 300 nights a year. And it's going to feel kind of weird after <laughs> no one's handing you a manual. And so, yeah, then when you discover these things that kind of help things feel a bit more in balance is a very powerful thing, I think. Yeah. Two kind of stories are coming to mind for me. One is, um, you know, I spent a lot of my early 30s in war zones as a correspondent for ABC News. And and it's, I, I don't know if I can compare it to being a rock star because I've never been one, but is a lot of adrenaline. It's very exciting. And then I would come home and get depressed. And mm -hmm. then yeah. I started doing drugs. Right. And it was... I exactly. just didn't Same. have any yeah. other coping mechanism. Yeah, like you're you're yeah. actually a paid correspondence in a place where you know people get degrees in journalism. There's a whole process to getting to the point yes. where you were that you'd think there would be a manual. Like, hey, listen, we know you really want to go out and be a war correspondent, but we have to tell you, you're going to see some crazy stuff, but it's not even that. When you come home, <laughs> you're not going to know who you are. Yes, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, so it is a similar thing. And that's why I think you over and over and over, you see musicians who get back and they're basically they're sort of chasing this moment yes. of transcendence yes. or and maybe it's adrenaline too and ego and all these other things and so the only thing is drugs of one direction or another to just try to hopefully they don't feel as weird when they're you know back or not in that process of of you know either <laughs> being a war correspondent or being on a big rock tour and i want to be clear because in this sensitive times 
I would in no way compare what we did to somebody being out actually in a war zone because we had a very, very cushy life comparatively. Uh, I totally get it. It's a rough analogy. And I wouldn't compare being a correspondent in a war zone to being a soldier in a war zone. So everybody's experience is different. The other thing I was going to say is like, so there's the adrenaline of music and being on tour that I can see being addictive in, in a way that is like roughly analogous to being in a war zone. You also talked about the transcendence of the creative process in music and how that can be roughly akin to breakthrough moments in yoga or meditation. And I just, I was having this memory of, I have a very close friend, a horrible thing happened to him. He lost two of his children in a plane crash and they were very Whoa. young and and he and I, we used to play music together. He plays guitar, I play the drums, like you, but not as well as you. And about a year after the accident, he and I were playing together, just the two of us. And here in New York City, you can rent, as you know, you can rent little studios for the night and they give you all the instruments. And he and I were in there bashing it out. And we finished one incoherent song and he just looked at me and said, this is some healing shit. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's right for him and for you. Think about that. In that moment, you're communicating without having to resort to words or directions or anything. So he's totally right. You were literally having a heartfelt communication. Coming up, Mike D talks about how he got through the end of his band and the passing of his friend, Adam Yauch. Loving kindness meditation, which he's a huge fan of apparently, and the role it plays in his parenting. And then we kind of flip seats for a moment and he asked me a bunch of questions about like how I got into the Beastie Boys. And then we talk a little bit about what it's like for him to hear how his work is received out in the world. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease let tidy care alert help keep an eye on your cat's health i want to fast forward to now but i also before i shut up and let you talk there was a thing i read that you said when yauk died and i believe 2011 or 12 and the beastie boys broke up you well, said- we didn't actually break up we sort of ceased being because we just felt like well, how can we be without Third yeah, leg of the yeah, suit. yeah, as as part of our living, breathing isness. I take your point that the correction very well, but you you said that you kind of didn't know what to do with your life at that point. Yeah, and so I'm curious with that as a backdrop, what's in your toolbox now for being as happy as possible? Mm. This is good, Dan. I'm getting a couple of really good notes for talk therapy here. Good things <laughs> to follow up with my therapist. But in that time after Yak died, it was for both Adam and I. It was really tumultuous time because it's not only losing you know this friend that was beyond a friend because he really was like the older brother in chosen life right as opposed to you know birth given life you know he really was like that older brother figure for both Horvitz and I 
And so it's like we, we lost the older brother and we also are like, well, what's our work identity now? You know, and how do we relate to that or whatever? And so it was a tumultuous time. And I, that's actually really where my TM practice thing came to, I think, the forefront for me of like, all right, that, if I just start every day with 20 minutes, you know, I sort of quickly would start to see, especially as a parent, like the amount of patience having a regular meditation practice, the, the sort of infusion of patience and equanimity. Not that I still don't have my moments of losing my shit. You can ask both my teenagers. They are becoming, by the way, more and more rare as time does go on, both in terms of, I think, just practicing and my maturity and probably also really my kids' maturity. But you know, I had one of those moments this last weekend where I lost my shit. So they will happen. But now I can see how, how much shame I feel right away when that does happen. I'm not good at letting things go. I'm very loyal to my friends, but if I weren't introduced to other philosophies and practices, I would be the worst vengeful or venge-filled version of myself. And you know, just a little bit of loving kindness meditation can go a really, really long way. There's a lot I've learned in life now. <laughs> in meditation, I'd like to let go of resentful behaviors on my part, right? If you're paying attention, it feels like shit. Yeah. You're pissed. <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge fan of talk therapy and a big proponent of it. But I do think one of the things you do see, what I really am trying not to do, and this is where I think, say, things like loving kindness, meditation are a huge, very important tool, is people get into this for some reason, and maybe it's just even part of American culture, but we get into this thing of self-victimization, Right, or like, oh, and you know, this is my pattern from earlier. You know, I have my trauma, and so I'm going through this. And so I, uh, but okay, well, what are you doing to try to actually change your relationship to that and to everybody and everything else in the world? Then where's the growth going to come from? Right? I totally agree. I mean, I was just talking about this. You and I have a mutual friend, Danny Demorrow, who's actually sitting right outside here, who introduced us. A shout out to Danny. And I was hanging with Danny yesterday, and. We're talking about this concept of the second arrow. Have you ever heard of that? Mm, no, please so, edify me. I will. I'll, I'll drop some knowledge. It's a Buddhist thing. Some guy's walking through the forest. He gets hit by an arrow, and there's the pain of being hit by an arrow. But then he adds the second arrow voluntarily of, why am I always the guy who gets hit by an arrow, and what's wrong with me, and now I'm going to be late for dinner, yeah. that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And what loving kindness meditation for me has helped me do is when I see something really embarrassing like, pettiness, competitiveness, unnecessary anger, bigotry, whatever it is that the mind coughs up, I can say, well, I didn't order this. I can view it with some warmth, not get stuck in a second arrow shame spiral, which by the way, is just more egotism and move on. Is what I'm talking about resonating with you in terms yeah. of what you said earlier? Yeah. I mean, I would probably go a little more for me on the shame, um, you go further into shame. I go further into shame, embarrassed. But we are all going to have our own vocabulary for the things that pop up that are the things that make us not feel great. And then it's sort of like, well, then what? What do we do? And so the same way that how quickly those things come up and will make us feel shame or make us feel frustrated or make us feel embarrassed. But that's, I guess, the thing I'm sounding a bit billboarded in terms of loving kindness meditation here, but that it is a tool where it is incredible how quickly you can really affect the dynamics of the situation. Yes. I'll get even more woo-woo about the whole thing. Say I had this little argument with my kids last weekend, and to my younger son, Skylar, who's 18, to his credit, he was so great because he said this thing. It was actually, I think, maybe one of my proudest parenting moments ever. He's just, he said, and it's not even for me to be proud of This is totally up to him and his knowledge and where he's at as a human. But he has said, you know, Dad, it doesn't feel good for us as your sons to sit here being called selfish by you. And I was like, you know, I instantly melted, right? Hmm. Because I was like, wow, you know, I'm barely capable of being that articulate at my thoroughly middle-aged age. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also was like, I'm so impressed that you could say something like that so accurately to me. But then it was so interesting because then I 
I was having a really hard time letting go and being embarrassed and being upset with myself for mm. being upset. Mm-hmm. And I go home, and thankfully, my girlfriend, Nadia, who can be a very good influence on me, is just like, oh, you know, mentioned, well, you know, think about loving kindness meditation. I mentioned, well, what's the um, the Hawaiian phrase? Like, I, I'm sorry, I forgive you, I forgive myself. And then going into this loving kindness meditation space where then I swear instantly, right away, Skylar called me and we just had a great conversation, you know, and, and it was like as if nothing happened, nothing had to be said. You get these dividends. Uh, now I'm really sound like an, a spiritual salesperson, so I'll stop. But uh, anyway. You're in a safe place for spiritual <laughs> sales. But this is, but people come to this show for that. <laughs> for spiritual but sales. The other thing, though, is that, I mean, the other component to all of this is that it's so important to have smart people around you, Nadia mm. and your girlfriend, being there to remind you, I mean, that's just another component of happiness, I think, is, you know, you mm. can do your practices, you can do your therapy. I know you do a lot of surfing and nature is really important. There, there are a lot of components for you and your toolbox, but a huge one's got to be surrounding yourself with people who can give you a compassionate smack on the snout or give you a supportive word that redirects you away from your shame. Oh, yeah, 100%. Right. So community, yes, whatever, whatever you want to call it, sangha, satsang, you want to apply a Sanskrit word, go ahead, be my guest. <laughs> or you could just say in English, community. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge factor. And, yes. and I agree with you, like nature. That's why I think one of the things that with, you know, you mentioned for me being in the ocean and surfing was also a transformational experience practice because that's where I, I actually sort of, to some degree, reprioritize my life. And I'm so grateful for it, <laughs> living a lot of my life in proximity to being able to surf because it's very immediate to us. We're so much smaller than this vast ocean and we are literally so not in control. You know, this wave is going to come. We're going to have zero control of where it's coming from, the exact direction. No two waves are identical. Every moment is unique and we're not in control. It comes right back to a theme you keep hitting in this conversation, which is getting out of your head in music, in yoga and meditation, the same thing can happen Mm -hmm. in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Depending on what your proximity is to nature, just going for a short hike in nature and immersing yourself that way. It takes you totally out of your, I think, self-judgmental thinking brain and into this real profound place of appreciation very quickly. I like to ask these two kind of like little questions at the end of an interview. Is there something I should have asked that I didn't ask? Is there a place you wanted to go to the extent that you had any agenda that I didn't take us? Well, I had a question for you because I'm just, again, like curious, going back to your earlier in life self. I understand like at first licensed to ill listening, there was something that brought you in. But then what made you have any continued interest in what we were doing? And what did that feel like? Oh, I have a bunch of things to say about this. Mm. First thing to say is, it kind of blows my mind to do the jump cut from being in the in the cheap seats at my first concert ever and watching these three older guys who I thought were so cool. Jump around and spray beer. Jump around and spray beer. And to now be sitting at the same table with you. Mm. So that that's just coming up in my head. In terms of my relationship to your music... You were ubiquitous at that time, and I loved hip-hop. I loved Run DMC. I loved LL Cool J, Curtis Blow. I was into early hip-hop. I was from Boston, but when I would come to New York City, I would make my mom take me down onto the subway platform so I could watch the trains go by with the graffiti on them. I had watched the documentary Wild Style and had my own Mm -hmm. tag, and I was just really into hip-hop. And then as I grew older, almost immediately after I saw you, my musical taste switched to indie rock. I started mm-hmm. getting really into you, Husker Du, The Replacements, mm. R.E.M., Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth. And so I slept on Paul's Boutique. I mm-hmm. didn't even notice it when it came out because it wasn't my genre. Mm. But then in 92, when Check Your Head comes out and you guys are playing your own instruments, I'm reading about it somewhere and I realized, oh, this is probably closer to my tastes. And that record blew me away and actually got me back into hip-hop got me into electronic music, that I, of course, loved everything you put out after that. I followed it very, very closely. And for me in the 90s, like, I was a young local news reporter and much of that time in Maine, and I felt really isolated. And for me, 
Beastie Boys records and so many of the records I was listening to felt like transmissions from a more sophisticated world than the one I mm. inhabited. And so the music was just incredibly important to me. And again, that just goes back to what I said before about how cool it is to be sitting at the same oh, table. Right. Yeah, I, I'm always hesitant to ask you that because I, I'm not trying to be ego indulgent, but I'm actually, I'm fascinated because I only know my experience. That's where I, I guess I, I'm just sort of very fascinated, not just for mine, but everybody's experience in creatively making stuff because I know what our experiences were in making say check your head, but I have no idea then what happens the second it leaves right. you know yes. our control and then becomes a mastered record that people buy in a store or stream through their phones. I don't know what those experiences are. So I actually am kind of curious like and I get an opportunity to ask someone what that is. It's, it's just it must be so cool. Like you go into a studio with your best friends, you make this thing and it is additive to other people's lives, right? It's the soundtrack to their lives. It's meaningful to them. And now I'm playing it to my kid. Right. You know, when we play yeah, Catch After we're Dinner. Very, we're extremely, I've been taught not to say lucky, but we're uniquely fortunate. Why can't you say lucky? What's wrong with lucky? You are well, lucky. I guess lucky because, because there is ultimately, there's, there's so much involved, right? There's karma, there's work, there's all these seconds have come before it, whatever, right? So it's serendipity that we could go on for several podcasts about, <laughs> you know, in any creative moment, right? All the nanoseconds that have led up to that thing happening. Or you really want to get deep in this lifetime and prior lifetime. Sure. So there's all of that. And so I guess, yeah, I do feel lucky that somehow that, that for us as a band, like it, we prioritize this relationship between the three of us, but that somehow ended up resonating with people in this kind of like ongoing way that's beyond even just like this song at one time, you know, and I can't explain it and I don't want to be able to explain it. I don't know. It's weird. I'm not comfortable in that. It's not my role. It's not my job to explain that, but I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for, <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful for it too. So like, thank you. like I was saying before, I mean, it's still a part of my life. And when I play catch after dinner with my son, we play, you know, inside uh, in the winter, we will often play music and it's often the Beastie Boys. So, in, so in, you're saying indoor catch, just to clarify yes. so that yes. your child's protective services don't come yes. to your house. You're making your child, <laughs> God forbid, throw a ball outside <laughs> in the Northeast in winter. Right. Not after dinner. We do it in the afternoon. Okay. After. Yeah. Uh, so child protective services, <laughs> you don't need to come today. I think I asked all the questions I wanted to Although ask. Although I am embarrassed about the picture that you have <laughs> on your notes. Is, I'm just going to point out to people listening, is like 19-year-old me with a VW emblem hung around a fake gold chain around my neck. And, and a leather hat, a leather candle leather, it's, hat. It's actually vinyl. Oh, it's vinyl. Vinyl okay, even better. bucket hat. Uh, anyway. It's been a huge pleasure to meet you. I really appreciate you doing this. All right, well, thank, thank you. you. Thanks again to Mike D. Thanks also to our mutual friend, Danny DeMauro. Shout out to Danny, uh, who set this whole thing up in the first place. Wouldn't have happened without you, Danny. Really appreciate that. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Lauren Smith, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of the band Islands delivered our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. As you know, in May, we're toggling back and forth between uh, boldface names and deep dharma. So coming up on Wednesday, we've got the great Joseph Goldstein wrapping up our series on uh, the Eightfold Path. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. 
Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.